You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. We're living through a time in which American capitalism is in decline. The real deep reason why we failed in the face of the pandemic, why we failed to be ready for the umpteenth economic crisis, is because we are a system that is disintegrating. We are headed now under the leadership, unfortunately, of the same two monopoly parties to increasingly dangerous confrontations with China. That's Richard Wolff, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Kalia Kuno and Richard Wolff on capitalism, the pandemic, and the two-party monopoly. The pandemic has revealed a huge systemic failure in the ability of the United States to effectively attend to the well-being of millions of its citizens. World-class inequality has exacerbated the situation. You don't need a degree from MIT to figure out the score. The rich get the gold, and most of the rest of us get the shaft. Once the dust settles post-pandemic, there will be a lot less competition out there. Amazon, Walmart, and a few other giants will be left with ear-to-ear grins and swollen bank accounts. Their wealth would make the robber barons of old swoon with envy. The capitalists love to pay lip service to competition, but their real goal is total monopoly control. Politics, the same deal. Your choice is limited to two establishment parties. To talk about capitalism, the pandemic, and the two-party monopoly are Kali Okuno and Richard Wolff. Kali Okuno is the co-founder and executive director of Cooperation Jackson, a grassroots eco-socialist organization dedicated to building a solidarity economy in Mississippi and beyond. Richard Wolff is professor of economics emeritus at UMass Amherst and currently a visiting professor at the New School in New York. The New York Times calls him America's most prominent Marxist economist. This webinar, organized by the Center for Critical Thought, was recorded in mid-November. We begin with Richard Wolff. The two political parties in this country operate a monopoly as odious and as contrary to what our stated commitments are as any other monopoly has ever been. We are a country that allows us to go into a drugstore and choose from 25 different brands of toothpaste. You know, the ones with blue dots or red stripes or a magical chemical that will not only improve your teeth, but transform your sex life. And when we go to a car dealership, we get a lot of choice of brands. But when it comes to political parties, oh no, we don't seem to need or want political choice. We don't seem to need or want competition. We get two parties that an increasing number of people 
need help keeping separate in their minds who they are, what they're for, how they differ, and mostly it's a stretch. They successfully keep all competitors out. They successfully block genuine choice most of the time. In economics, when we have a monopoly like this, we look for barriers to entry. That's what we call it. That's when a monopoly erects systems that make it impossible for other parties, for other candidates to get in there. So the two parties spend an amount of money that makes it very, very difficult, if not impossible, for anyone to raise the funds that would even allow you to get your message out there so that people would have a choice. We have mass media who are themselves big companies operating a monopoly who in fact help the monopoly of the two parties who return the favor and operate joint monopolies. So we had a debate, not among all the people running, because in case you're not aware of it, there were others running, but they were excluded by the monopolized media from disturbing the monopolized politics. We have the law, which makes it impossible for small parties to elect, even if they get five, 10 or 20% of the vote, a comparable number of legislators. We don't have what's called proportional representation. Even though the vast majority of other advanced industrial countries, and indeed non-industrial, non-advanced countries, do have proportional representation because they believe that a democracy requires that if 10% say of the people vote for a political party, it gets 10% of the lawmakers in the legislature. We don't do that in the United States. And for that, we ought to feel shame because it is an illegitimate way of maintaining the monopoly. Both of our political parties are run by establishments who never hesitate, if asked, to explain that they are capitalists, that they support capitalism, that they endorse capitalism. And even if they didn't say it, if you look at what they do, you will see that they subsidize capitalism, that they support it in every conceivable way, buying from the capitalist, passing the laws that educate people to become workers for the capitalists. I could go on, but you all know. What we don't have in the United States is a significant political party beyond the two that love, embrace, and support capitalism, we don't have a choice if we feel that the United States could do better than capitalism. We don't have a way to vote for that that is meaningful, operational, and can become, as it should be, part of the discussion of a society like ours. Let's be real honest 
our capitalist system was unprepared for two things that it should have been prepared for, that there is no excuse for having been unprepared for. We have had viruses as long as there has been a human race to take account of them. There's nothing new about viruses. There's nothing new about how dangerous they can be. In 1918, we had a terrible virus that began on a military base in Kansas. Nobody then called it the American virus because giving nationality to viruses struck people back then as lunatic. But because of who we had as president, this virus that we weren't prepared for was given a nationality. Okay, we all know what we would have needed. We would have needed a stockpile all around the United States of tests and masks and gloves and ventilators and hospital beds. We know how to make those things. We have warehouses. We could have, we should have been prepared, but we weren't. And I wanna make real clear why we weren't. The answer why we weren't has to do with capitalism. Very simple. It doesn't pay a company that makes tests or masks or gloves to produce large quantities, to store them in warehouses spread around the country where population exists so that we would be prepared. It wasn't profitable and so the companies didn't do it. They didn't make them, they didn't store them. They didn't wanna spend the money to store those masks for years, to make sure they were kept clean, to make sure that if they wore out, they would be replaced. That's expensive and you don't know when the next virus will come. And so you're, you're risking a lot of capital and that's how capitalism works. It doesn't organize itself to be safe against a virus. That's a secondary consideration. Capitalism is a system that puts profit first. And when you do that, you don't produce the masks, the gloves, the ventilators. I know it's fashionable to blame Mr. Trump and he certainly deserves plenty, but he's not the reason we weren't prepared. We weren't prepared a year ago or four years ago or eight years ago either. And for the same reason, profit is what drives business, not public health. And in this virus, we had a direct confrontation between the needs of capitalism to be guided by profit versus the needs of the public health of the American people. Capitalism failed to secure the health of the people. And that alone is a reason to believe that we can do better than capitalism. And we even know how, don't we? We know that the government could have come in 10 years ago, five years ago, 50 minutes ago, the government could have come in and said to all the capitalists, 
producing the masks, the tests, the gloves, the ventilators. It could have said, you produce them. We, the government, will buy them. We, the government, will store them and monitor them and clean them and replace them. And we will have them ready if and when a virus like COVID-19 shows up. We know the government can do that, but it didn't do it. And you know how we know it could have done it? Because that's what the defense business is. You know, it doesn't pay a capitalist to make a missile, put it in a warehouse somewhere, monitor it, clean it, preserve it. If it wears out, replace it. It doesn't pay people to produce guns and ships and planes and tanks for the exact same reason. But we have a government that comes in and buys those things from the company and then uses our taxes to store them, to monitor them and to clean them. We have a system that does it for military equipment, but doesn't do it for the public health. And in case you're not familiar, we have already lost more people dead in this virus than died in most of the wars fought by the United States. It is a failure of the capitalist system. The companies at the first level and the government that they control at the second level. It's an argument of failure, abject failure. Many, many countries in the world, much poorer than the United States, have managed this virus much, much better. We have no excuse. We know how to produce the goods. We know how to take care of our people, but we have a system that failed to do it. And we will continue because the two parties that monopolize this system cannot and will not behave other than they have behaved all along. If I had more time, I could show that the Obama administration and the Bush administration and the Clinton administration did not do for the public health what they could have and should have either. Two political parties who can monopolize can arrange to discuss these issues very carefully avoiding their own fundamental responsibility. Just like the monopolists can flood the airways with advertisements so that we keep on buying from them and not confronting how much better off we would be if we had genuine choice and if we had more than two pro-capitalist parties outdoing each other to celebrate the same system. But I said to you, we weren't prepared for more than the virus. So let me add what else we weren't prepared for. This capitalist system that Republicans and Democrats, with a few exceptions, fall all over themselves to endorse, this capitalist system has an economic downturn every four to seven years. It's had that for 300 years in every country where capitalism settled in. We have a lot of words for these downturns. 
recessions, depressions, busts, crashes, crises. We have a lot of words because it's a part of our lives, like the rain or the sun or the seasons. We know that every four to seven years on average, a crash comes. And we know that the last crash was in 2008 because most of us lived through it and know very well that it happened. Well, if you add four to seven to 2008, well, then you know that by the time Mr. Trump becomes president, we're already overdue for the next one. We needed to be prepared for that sudden drop in jobs, for the tens of thousands of little businesses that go out of business, for all the money not flowing into the cities and states to take care of the public services. We need more when the economy goes down, not less. Our crazy system bankrupts the cities and states so they can't provide us with the public services. We need more when the private economy tanks. That's a system that is very badly organized. But we weren't ready. Nothing was in place. We had to rush and pass laws temporarily giving people a few hundred dollars a week as if this crash wasn't another one of the every four to seven years. Let me remind you, we are 20 years into the 21st century. We had a crisis in the spring of 2000, usually called the dot-com crisis. We had another crisis in 2008, usually called the subprime mortgage crisis. And here we are in 2020, and we got another crisis worse than the other two, which we're going to call the COVID-19 crisis. 20 years of a new uh, century, three crises. Yep. Every seven years on average, just like it's always been. And every effort by capitalist countries and economies to do something about this grotesque instability that hurts so many millions over and over again. Throughout every effort to deal with it, we have had nothing but capitalist failure. That's why we're in another horrible economic crash now. And if it hadn't been the, the virus, it would have been something else because it's always been something else. The virus is only capitalism's worst nightmare. Namely, when you have an economic crash happening together with a natural disaster or a health disaster, that's what we're living through capitalism's worst nightmare. But don't worry, America, your two political parties will never say what I just said. They will not blame capitalism. They will not criticize capitalism. They're going to make believe that capitalism has nothing to do with anything because that's the best they can do. They dare not talk about it because if they did, There'd be all kinds of folks just like me driving the point home that we can do better than a capitalism that fails as spectacularly 
as this one does. We can and we should. But with these two political parties, no chance. We're living through a time in which American capitalism is in, and there's no nice way to say this, and I'm not going to beat around the bush. U.S. capitalism is in decline. The real deep reason why we failed in the face of the pandemic, why we failed to be ready for the umpteenth economic crisis is because we are a system that is disintegrating. That's why so many people could possibly bring themselves to vote for the hysterical political theater that is Donald Trump. We have to face it. And if we missed it, let me drive it home from another perspective. Sometimes you can see the decline of one system a little more clearly once you can glimpse and understand the rise of a different one. And that's going on. And that's not changing. It's called the People's Republic of China. And I am not arguing that you should like it or not, that you should have criticisms like every system. It has its strengths and it has its weaknesses. And a good criticism of China is as important as anything else. But that's not going to change the following reality. China was much better prepared for this virus than the United States. It has had a tiny fraction of the number of cases and deaths, even though the population of China is four times larger than that of the United States. It is growing economically this year. The United States is declining. The economic growth rate of China has been three times that of the United States for a quarter of a century. That's why the Chinese are the other economic superpower. China is ascending, we are descending. China relates to the United States the way the United States, once it got independent, related to the big shot of its time, the British Empire. The British Empire tried twice with military means to squash the independence of the United States, the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. We are headed now under the leadership, unfortunately, of the same two monopoly parties to increasingly dangerous confrontations with China. The better bet is to work out a coexistence, a way of benefiting from each other. But the two parties don't do that. They like to bash China, to promote in the United States the idea that somehow, some way, someday, we are going to stop being the descending power as they are the ascending power. Americans who pay attention have been waiting for this for the last 30 years, and it never came, and there's nothing bringing it now. We need political parties that offer us something other than China bashing, but we don't have it because the two monopoly parties in this country 
think they can make hay by bashing the Chinese. And now my final point. Both of these parties play a game. We're watching the game now. I run the show for a few years, and then we have a big to-do, and I'll turn it over to you. And maybe I won't turn it over nicely, but I'll turn it over. Because I know in the end that I can give it to you because you're going to have to give it back to me. When you have two companies sharing a monopoly, that's how they work it. Here, this part of the country is yours. This part of the country is mine. And this part of the world is yours. And this part of the market is mine. That's all these two political parties have done. They've carved up the country. They've carved up each state. They've carved it up. And they fight over the details. But basically, neither of them, here we go now, goes outside the line. No one uses the coloring book and puts the colors outside the lines. Neither party dares go to the people to get people really involved. Not once a year going into a booth and making a little mark on a piece of paper, but in the ongoing daily struggle that real politics is about. These political parties only mobilize the opportunity for us to give them the power. And as long as we permit that, as long as we allow these two monopolists, we will be condemned to choose the lesser of two evils and be left with the evil of two lessers. Thank you for your attention, and I look forward to hearing what my colleague, Kali Akuno, has to say. Let me say first and foremost that I am deeply pleased that Rick focused on the system, right? And, and not the symptoms, but the system. So much of the political commentary that we have been uh, literally inundated with has been so much of a, a narrow focus on symptoms of the problem. Trump himself and what he represents being a symptom of a problem and not a real engagement of the system. And we have to move towards deeper conversations of the system. Uh, let me state that first and, and foremost, that almost any conversation from this point should be based on analysis of the capitalist system and, and uh, where uh, either the nation state actors, wherever they may be, whoever they are, uh, fit into that and where social movements fit into that in when and how uh, we can intervene. Now, elections, uh, we've been told time and time again, particularly here in the United States, are basically the only fundamental way that we can kind of uh, intervene. But we need to be clear that within that structure, we don't get to vote capitalism out. You know, there's certain things within that structure, uh, which are just about trying to manage the contradictions of capitalism, not trying to create a new system. And what we need to be really clear on is developing both an analysis and a program and the organizational capacity to build the new system that we need. 
the critical elements of it, I would argue, uh, are already in existence here in the United States. Uh, but the, those kind of elements of analysis and the political connections, if you would, don't exist to make it the legitimate force we need, at least not yet. And I think that's part of some of our critical work uh, going forward or has to be uh, going forward. You're listening to Kali Akuno and Richard Wolf, Capitalism, the Pandemic, and the Two-Party Monopoly. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get CDs, MP3s, PDFs of this program, and our special Noam Chomsky book, Requiem for the American Dream. Our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, that website, alternativeradio.org. Picking up on where Rick left off, I'm really glad he brought up the piece around China. In March, uh, I wrote a short piece around uh, China and its kind of ascending role and what that meant to the United States, but I think also globally. And in short, what I stated was, you could see this transition in the preliminary response that China did. And what was that? The ability and the capacity and the political will that in the span of what we know of what, two months, uh, they built, I think it was, and I have to go, go back and fact check myself, but remember correctly, they had built close to a hundred hospitals in the span of two months to deal with this crisis, you know, which somewhat caught them off guard, but the, the level and nature of their response was uh, nothing short of amazing, regardless of how you view the Chinese Communist Party or the system. And their capacity and determination to deal with it up front, I think really sent some chills down many of their Western kind of antagonists uh, and rival spines. Because the United States, as of right now, could not do anything remotely similar. And so that's something we have to look at. And then the other thing that, that I was just noting was how they were handling the, the pandemic very early on in a spirit of cooperation, you know, to the, to the extent that various capitalist forces can and do. Uh, but they were very quick to share this is what we've learned about how to treat this. This is what we learned how to contain this. And sharing that information first with Italy, uh, et cetera. And you saw the same thing happening with countries with very little resources, Cuba being kind of chief amongst them, uh, taking both their medical uh, knowledge and expertise, which is some of the highest in the world, but sharing that knowledge and information readily, sending doctors all over the world uh, to, to treat this uh, uh, pandemic. Total different reaction from how the United States uh, reacted. And it's still reacting. And let's be clear how it continues to plan to react. Now, what do I mean by that? Biden and his administration, by all indications, is set to meet this pandemic utilizing the same private market kind of in incentives that the Trump administration did, only with a bit more gusto. So uh, there's been some indication that they will call in some of the state's many powers uh, to fashion and shape, you know, production in the said prices and to buy things up, as Rick 
Rick noted, there's been some indication of doing that. Uh, but the, the broader dynamics uh, of ensuring that the companies make a profit, he hasn't backed away from that. They haven't backed away from that at all, and, and nor are they. Um, and they are still very much on course uh, to this point, given all this, uh, the transition kind of drama uh, that's being played out. But they're still very much on course towards orienting us all towards a, the, uh, a, a quote-unquote medical solution, i.e. seeking a cure, uh, meaning coming up with some form of uh, uh, antidote uh, that they can sell and put on the market to treat people rather than dealing and doing what most of the countries that have thus far successfully contained this. You can look at Vietnam, you can look at Cuba, you can look at New Zealand, you can look at a number of other different places. They have dealt with this situation through social organization, through communication, through the application of science, through the application of planning. That is how they have dealt with the situation, which could easily be done here. But the, the, the dynamic of putting the market and market profitability first and foremost above any and everything is going to continue to drive this pandemic. So anyone listening, do not expect any any miracles at this point of, of a drastic change in orientation from the Biden administration. We are going to be dealing with this pandemic and all of its consequences for many years to come, unfortunately. Now, what I want to pivot to, there's no question that we have to build new political vehicles to break out of the monopoly that that uh, Rick broke down. We've known this sadly for a long, long time. But I would argue are many uh, illusions uh, amongst the left and amongst progressive forces that we have to kind of step away from, disavow, and use the time and energy uh, that we periodically get sucked up to, particularly every four years. We need to spend as much time, energy, and the commitment to, to resources to start building our alternatives. And I would argue uh, for very much the same reason that Rick put out, uh, we are really already in the midst of a deep depression. Don't let the stock markets and, and all those games and things fool you. Uh, that was all a big, you know, monopoly money shell game to begin with. And all of the money that the Fed has spent propping up the economy, you know, basically since May to the tune of trillions, literally just printing monopoly money at, uh, in many respects at this point. What we have in store because of the agreements of these monopoly forces is a major program of austerity. That is what's coming down the pipeline. Uh, and it's going to be severely acute for many years to come. We already see here in the United States that there are many states and counties and municipalities, not just on the federal government level, but on the local level, the practical levels that are running bankrupt and that are going to be in some need of a major uh, infusion of resources from the federal government uh, to be able uh, to deal with. Neither party has a major interest in, in seeing that, in particular now that uh, by all indications, any form of kind of stimulus will be very narrow, very small, very particular, and very much about extending certain capital interests. It is not going to be about saving working class America in oppressed communities. Uh, if anything, they're going to look at this 
whole endeavor as it means to drive wages down, to drive working conditions down, to recondition you know, the working class in the United States to, to accept the worst conditions and to use this as a renegotiating tool and employ to reposition themselves in this country uh, in the pecking order of, of, of the capitalist system. That is fundamentally what's on offer. And I think we need to just be honest and real about that uh, going forward. And despite the rhetoric around looking at climate change, trying to improve uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and, and creating a health option and dealing with racial justice, these are the so-called progressive uh, troika, if you will, that, that the Biden administration has put out. They have no fundamental plan to deal with any of those because to resolve any of them means some fundamental breaks with the capitalist system. That's not on offer. That's not on order. So we should expect more of the same. Now, how do we break out of that? We know the millions of the, uh, of the jobs that have disappeared are never coming back. Like that is a cold reality we're going to have to face. So we are looking at many years of having to, to, out of necessity in our communities, rely on mutual aid. I'm here to argue that we should look at this not as a weakness, not as a deficit, uh, but as in, in practical uh, uh, sense, an opportunity. Doesn't mean that there won't be a lot of uh, uh, suffering uh, that we won't have to deal with. There already is. That is, a, if you come to my community, um, you know, right now, just outside of my uh, window, um, over at uh, uh, Stupot, which is one of the largest homeless service providers in the state of Mississippi. They are in the mix right now as we uh, we speak, uh, serving their daily uh, lunch program. There are hundreds of people out there, hundreds. So this is the reality uh, that, that we are confronting now uh, in all of our uh, communities. What we have to do is transition that, not so that it's kind of a service, but mutual aid in the sense of us doing mutual productivity and, and mutual development uh, of uh, things that we are able to produce with the resources that are available within our communities and shifting our organizing orientation and focus in that particular manner. One of the beautiful things that I think has somewhat been forgotten uh, about what has happened since, you know, really since the pandemic occurred in the United States, hundreds if not thousands of mutual aid projects, you know, just erupted uh, across the United States. And the, the critical thing about that, it, it speaks to many people still wanting, seeking and, and knowing how to con connect and organize in their own communities to meet basic needs. Uh, what we need to do, and this is a core piece of what we've been trying to put out and going to do a lot more work uh, with a short like pamphlet and book that we're working on, it's called the Build and Fight Formula. It's taking that as a fundamental both uh, organizing uh, reality that's already in play and saying let's use that as a foundational bedrock to build upon and work on building a new transformative system uh, in the here and now. And we have to start with identifying the, the benefit and the beauty that I just spoke of, uh, but also identifying some of the weaknesses in that uh, in most of how the, the mutual aid work has exploded kind of out of necessity, it's not necessarily rooted, unfortunately, uh, in productive activities and us doing mutual exchange with our productive activities. But we know that there are 
some of those networks already exist. And the question is, how do we bring them together? And what do I mean by that? Food sovereignty work, right? Uh, be it uh, uh, local community gardens or be it uh, many efforts of, of particularly young folks throughout uh, this country uh, going back into to doing farming. Uh, we need to connect those mutual aid efforts with these food sovereignty efforts in a systemic manner. Um, so that they're, they're both meeting and ascertaining direct needs of folks in our communities, but putting ourselves in direct relation to produce for need and distribute based upon need. Critical principle that we want to uh, build and uphold going forward. There's also a corresponding uh, solidarity economy and, and or cooperative uh, movement that has been building in this country that needs to be tied very explicitly and directly uh, with uh, the forces of organized labor uh, to rearticulate what we, we can do uh, in the productive sectors uh, to produce the actual goods and services that we need that build and extend upon this foundation of mutual aid and the sovereignty work. These are things that we think are, are the cornerstones of what we can build for you know, a, a, a new program uh, of a mass scale to rearticulate where we need to go in the mix of a deepening uh, crisis and a deepening depression here in the United States that moves us out of the realm of being dependent on either of these uh, political parties and gives us a basis to form a new political project and a new political core to redirect this system and challenging in its fundamental roots. Uh, so I want to stop there and, 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 and do some exchange both with Rick and to take all the questions that may come up from the audience. We're a people divided. We're a people divided in so many different ways. And when you say we can, what are the factors that are continuing to divide us? Um, and let me just throw this in that a, a lot of us were supportive of Cooperation Jackson because it actually was a nexus in reality of the historic liberation movement for black self-determination and economic independence in the United States. But also, it was an eco-socialist effort. What's preventing us from, a lot of us, unifying around that vision? Well, what's stopping us? Good question. I'm trying to figure out which, what, which <laughs> point to start with, because there are many. It's not like there's one. Let's be clear about that. I think one of the biggest ones is our own disbelief in our own capacities, to be honest with you. Um, and this is something, this is, this is kind of an orientation that unfortunately uh, has been a, a kind of a principle, I think, particularly of, of I'm going to just call it, people may not like it, but uh, that's fine. We, we need to debate this. But I think particularly of the labor unions and the labor movement in this country, uh, which for, for far too long, uh, has viewed itself as being a partner to capital and a partner to management uh, and not uh, as an independent force to either represent its own interests or more broadly uh, to see itself as kind of the majority of humanity and then situating itself uh, to use that uh, position uh, to create a new society. That fundamental kind of class orientation has been long since abandoned and jettisoned. So I know in a lot of our conversations, uh, the very notion sometimes that we put forward that workers should manage their own affairs, we get uh, asked repeatedly 
uh, that's too much to put on workers, you know, that for some reason we need to have some external management and self-management is impossible. Uh, and the democratic practices that would need to be developed to harness that are impractical and asking workers to do too much. This is rooted, I think, in longstanding ideological positions that are part of this set of compromises that have been built into, unfortunately, the labor, American labor movement. Um, that is a big barrier, I think, to even hearing our basic message of just worker self-organization and worker uh, uh, self-management, uh, let alone a broader conversation about, you know, uh, uh, eco-socialism. So that's one that I think we're going to have to tackle because, and I'm stating that one amongst many, uh, because I think it's one of these key nuts that we're going to have to crack in order to really build out something like the build and fight uh, formula that we've been kind of articulating. And that's not just situated within, you know, the trade union movement as, as it exists, which only represents roughly about 10% of all workers in this country. But that orientation of even how you build a union or why you build a union, that's still very much there because it's very much focused in on issues of improving the conditions at the work site, not transforming the work site and not transforming the society. And that is a different orientation that we have to take. We're going to have to push and struggle with our fellow workers, I think, towards towards adopting this view and in the interest of us all. Uh, if I could uh, jump in and, and add a little bit to what Kali has, what Kali is saying, you know, for a long period of time, wherever slavery existed in the history of the world, slaves who were unhappy with their situation limited and were urged to limit their demands to improving the situation, getting more or better food, getting more or better clothing, getting more or better shelter, getting treated better in terms of keeping their families intact and so on until there arose among the slaves the people who said stop to their fellow slaves what we want is way beyond more of what they give us we don't want to be in a position that they give us in other words the issue isn't the conditions of the slaves it's the status of slavery it's slavery as a system and for me the tragedy of the labor movement is when it gave up because it had it, it had it. It gave up all of the transformative agenda that Kali referred to in order to limit itself to better clothing, better shelter, better wages and all the rest without saying that what's really the tragedy for the working class is to be subordinate is to be at the beck and call of a tiny minority of people that run every business in this country with very few exceptions. I would also like to say something in 120% agreement that we have to deal with our own hesitancy to act. Something has been bred in the American people for a long time that the system is run by such an automatic machinery, such an overwhelming, powerful, da 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 da. So it reminds me if you read how people in the Middle Ages felt about the king. Here's the last point. The courageous, and, and I want to give them their due, 
the courageous decisions of people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and the, the recent campaign of Cori Bush and people like that, they have shown that what was told to people like me is not doable, is that you can, if you gather around you people who see this, you can make big differences. Takes time, takes work, takes self-criticism, it takes a lot of things. But no system is all that well articulated. The kings thought there would be kings forever. There aren't. And people who thought that slavery would last forever, it didn't. Or feudalism, it didn't either. And capitalism is the same. You know, like every other system, it was born, it evolved, and the next stage is death. It's really not whether, it's only when and under what circumstances. And I think we are at a point where the intrinsic problems of the capitalist system are becoming more and more glaring in this pandemic, in this crisis. And that hopefully, if Kali's point can be understood, we can ratchet up our determination and capacity to move at the same time that the system's vulnerability give us opportunities. So I have a, a basic question that a, a bunch of folks have been asking um, in the last few weeks, and that involves who are we, given the class confinements and the class analysis leading up to this period, who are we when we say we can? I think we have a historical and theoretical understanding of that. What we don't have is a, is a concrete, practical, organizational answer to that. Because of uh, the racial and class divides and the different perceptions around that. Uh, so we, who we are in, in the main right now are, are, are a great deal of fragmented subjects. You know, uh, even our social movements are deeply fragmented around uh, not a phrase I, I like, but it's one that in a certain context makes sense uh, around identity politics uh, and around special uh, issues, right? Like one of the things the neoliberal influence on the movement has, has done, and we need to recognize that, is break us into fragmented little parts. And so we only deal with one little issue or one little part which we kind of hold dear, I think is central. You could say if, if we had an organized movement, there would be a division of labor, but things relating to a broader whole and a broader strategy. We're not there. We don't have that yet. So who we are are these fragmented subjects. But we still, I would argue, we still have a good number, a fair number of shared interests in a shared reality under the, the, the subjects uh, of a coherent system, you know, that yes, it, it impacts us differently. It exploits us and oppresses us or excludes us, you know, somewhat differently. But, you know, it's like that old analogy of us feeling the, the elephant from different vantage points. You know, one got a leg, one got the trunk, uh, but it's still the same beast, it's still the same animal. And I think us coming up with the common analysis and work to, to figure that out is, is a key part of what we're going to need to do in this next period. And I'm, I'm focusing in on this because, you know, you already see a ratcheting up of the language of division 
coming from the Democrats, right? Coming from the Democrats. And I'm sharing this uh, because Rick talked about Bernie, both talked about AOC, who are both under extreme attack from a section of their, their own party for uh, allegedly costing some major defeats in, in the House, you know, many down ballot races throughout uh, uh, many states. I think that's a completely wrong analysis, but it speaks to them preserving a particular class interest to that party and that institution and trying to discipline uh, those of us in this subject who may relate to it to concede further to their their particular variant uh, and strategy of, of capital accumulation, which many, you know, call uh, neoliberalism, the, the, to get us to buy into that, uh, that there is no other option. We're back to a new form of Tina. There is no other option, right? There is no alternative uh, but to go with them and to go their way. They're dead wrong. Uh, and I think all the efforts, big or small, uh, that have demonstrated them wrong in the last couple of years, both need to be highlighted, elevated, but also I think criticized for where they, they come up short, where they don't do enough work, uh, I think to, to fully expose uh, the system and to build uh, a more radical uh, program to take us further down the road. So there's positive, but there's still a great deal uh, to go to break this type of fragmentation and build uh, uh, a broader kind of unified subject that can then act politically uh, in a more coherent and forceful way to change the system. Look, the capitalist class is not just going to let us um, do what we want to do without challenge and without some struggle. So I want to make it, make it clear that part of our self-organization uh, always uh, has and always will entail a level of self-defense uh, organizing that is uh, necessary. We wouldn't, uh, in a place like Mississippi, you, you don't get to speak all the, the points that we speak if we, if we weren't confident in a certain degree of our own ability to defend ourselves in light of the historic campaigns and reigns of terror that exist. We need to step that up uh, on a major uh, basis and make that a coherent piece of what's going on because the state uh, is, is going to come after our social movements, already is coming after our social movements, uh, and us being prepared for that is a fundamental piece. But it has to be done under no illusions that at the end of the day, uh, there's just going to be a, a new or a peaceful transition from one system to the next. Capitalist class is going to fight to defend their interests uh, in this system to the bitter end, and we need to get prepared for that. You were just listening to Kali Akuno and Richard Wolf on capitalism, the pandemic, and the two-party monopoly. They spoke in mid-November. Kali Akuno is co-founder and executive director of Cooperation Jackson. Richard Wolf is professor of economics emeritus at UMass Amherst and currently a visiting professor at the New School in New York. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Kali Akuno and Richard Wolf on Capitalism, the Pandemic, and the Two-Party Monopoly, and for our special Noam Chomsky book, 
Requiem for the American Dream, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go to our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call at one 800 444 Special thanks to the Center for Critical Thought. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Andrea Bocelli, Conte Partiro. Time to say goodbye. I got a lot of really smart friends, and uh, they, they told me that the the universe is uh, kind of shaped like a really big, empty space burrito. And what you do is it'd be like you cut the ends off and you empty the filling, and you have what would be essentially the space, the the shape of the the universe. Now, what's important is that the the space burrito causes time and space to curve on itself. Now, when the radio broadcasts, it broadcasts into the cosmic tube, and the universe will bring radio back forever and ever. CJSW 90.9 FM. Radio forever. Forever radio.